before we had kids, um, our, our, our adopted our sons, my wife and I went to uh, Grand Teton National Park and we were in the Tetons camping one night and I just found myself looking up from our campfire at the Grand Teton um, there. And I found myself for about 30 minutes, I couldn't take my eyes off of it. And my wife noticed this. She said, you haven't looked down at your book for a long time, why not? And I said, I think it's because I'm so drawn by the mystery, I can't look away. I, my brain can't fully take in just how beautiful uh, the, the, the Teton, the peak that I'm actually looking at here. And I thought, man, I wish I would appreciate the mystery of God the same way. Sometimes I can say, oh, he's too mysterious and hard to understand. And, but if I really, truly understand the mystery of God, it will draw me in further rather than push me away. Welcome to the Transforming Discipleship Podcast brought to you by smallgroups.com. This podcast is designed to help church leaders think about what it looks like to make disciples of Jesus Christ. I'm your host today, Oliver Hersey, and I'm joined by our producer, Kelsey Bows. Kelsey, how are you doing today? Doing really well. Yeah, I'm I'm happy the weather finally turned around 80 degrees, so 80. life is good. Yeah, oh, that's good. Yeah, it's sunny where I am today, so... It's good when the sun is shining and it is warm. Uh, I hear Dark that. clouds of winter have finally lifted. Yeah, I hear that. So I'm, at, I'm with our staff right now this week, our staff with Jerusalem University College. Mm. We're doing some orientation and training before we head over to Jerusalem. So it's been kind of fun. I'm oh. in Ohio right now. Wow, that's exciting. Oliver, how are you feeling about the impending life change? I'm good. You know, I mean, the life has already begun. The change has begun. It's now we're kind of got to enter into the whole transition process of getting over there. We're looking at moving probably in mid-June is the goal. So we're excited. We're, we're feeling all kinds of things, but mostly excitement and anticipation to what God has in store for us there. So, Yeah. And uh, we pray a lot. And that's exactly what this episode was about. AR breaks. You like that segue? Wasn't that? Yeah, <laughs> that was seamless. Yeah, I'm praying a lot. And, you know, this episode with J.R. Briggs, who happens to be one of the board members at JUC, the school that I'm working for. J.R. has such a way with words and ability to mm. teach. His book was phenomenal. Really enjoyed reading it. We talk about prayer in this episode. And Kelsey, you got a chance to, to listen to it, edit it, all this good stuff that you do. Mm -hmm. What were your thoughts as you were dialed into it? There was a lot of substance there. And what J.R. said about living in the incarnational mystery of God with us, that really struck me that we want to live our lives with God. So it's not just on Sunday when you're sitting in the church service, but in the everyday moments of when I'm walking to the coffee shop or when I have a difficult conversation with a friend or he wants to be in all of that. Yeah. And the idea that prayer, when we're with God, when we're with God, one of the ways we are with him is in this experience of prayer. Mm -hmm. And prayer sometimes is me talking to God. Sometimes it's listening to God. But it's this idea of being with God in this season. And it makes the difficult conversations with your friend, like you said, or whatever it is, more manageable. Or for me, when you're moving halfway around the world. <laughs> yeah, sometimes there's nothing that you can do except pray. And, and it's interesting how 
sometimes it feels like if you don't get the answer you want in prayer that God isn't really listening. But of course, there's more of a mystery underneath, kind of like what JR was saying. So we have to enter into that mystery and see what God is inviting us into in that moment, even when it feels a little unpleasant. It's so Yeah, you, you put that exactly right. It's good and it's right and it's okay to live in the tension of the mystery. I hope our listeners, I hope you guys out there like this episode for all the reasons we did. It was really, really strong. JR is a wonderful human being. I really hope you draw from this and are encouraged by it in your prayer life. So enjoy. Today on the Transforming Discipleship Podcast, I'm joined by the one and only J.R. Briggs. J.R. is the founder of Kairos Partnerships, an organization committed to serving leaders through leadership coaching and consulting. J.R. is an extremely gifted communicator, both verbally and in print. If you've read any of his books, you know what I'm talking about. He speaks all over the place, all over the country. He's an affiliate professor in the Practical Theology Department at Missio Seminary. He's served in a variety of other roles from pastoral appointments to a recent one as the Director of Leadership and Congregational Formation for the Ecclesia Network. And indeed, he even serves on the Board of Directors for Jerusalem University College, which as some of you know, it's the institution that I've recently been appointed to serve. So in a way, JR, welcome to the podcast. You are like one of my bosses. So it's so great to <laughs> chatting with you today. Well, great to be with you, Oliver. I see you first as friend and second yeah. as uh, as uh, our board president relationship. So. <laughs> well, it, it's been a pleasure to get to know you. I've listened to your own podcast a little bit. Uh, it's, is it, it's called Resilient Leadership. Am I getting that one right? Yeah, the Resilient Leaders podcast. The yep. Resilient Leaders, that's right. And I've yeah. enjoyed that. You have a lot to offer us, both in the world of leadership as well as discipleship. And so, I, you know, it was about a year ago that our vice president suggested your name. And I knew your name on a piece of paper because I was in the middle of an application process, an interview process with GAUC. And uh, I saw that you were on the board. And so you've been a name on my docket for a long time, but now I've gotten to know you a little bit. It's been really a joy to uh, hear about the work you're doing and uh, the people you serve. So, and thanks for taking the time today to be on this podcast. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. This is a topic that I love talking about. We're in Pennsylvania right now. Mm -hmm. Yep. Just north of the Philadelphia, greater Philadelphia region. Just tell us real quick about your family a little bit. Yeah. So my wife, Megan, and I, we met at Taylor University. We both actually went to JUC, uh, different semesters, but that is our common thread. I'm not sure we'd be together if it weren't for our experience over in Israel. And we have two sons, Carter's 14, Bennett is 11, both through the miracle of adoption. And we just have become, by accident, through our own story of infertility, we've become adoption advocates. And so we love walking alongside of other couples that are thinking about adoption. So we're really grateful. You know, we're in the teenage stage now with our 14-year-old, which is uh, new terrain, as most parents of teenagers know. So we're we're grappling in the dark a little bit uh, of how to parent well in that, but nonetheless, really grateful for our family. Today, I really want to talk about a book you've just recently published. I remember seeing it, you had won an award. This book that was published in 2020, The Sacred Overlap, Learning to Live Faithfully in the Space between. Tell us a little bit about this book. Yeah. One of the things that I've noticed is that while Jesus is the great either or, that once we submit our lives fully to him, there's a whole bunch of these things that made me scratch my head and say, wait a second, 
Jesus in, is inviting us in to live a life faithfully following him that actually has a lot of both and to it. And that wasn't how I was raised. I was raised in very bifurcated faith, you know, don't do this and do this, and that's the world, and we stay out of it. And yet, the more I would read my Bible, um, I mean, nothing has messed with my theology more than reading my Bible. And the more I read my Bible, the more I say, wait a second, Jesus is the great either or, we submit our lives to him, but he's even described in a whole bunch of unique ways that kind of has this both and language to it. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But once that's said, man, I just began to say he's fully God and he's fully man. You know, he's he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's committed to justice and mercy. He meets the woman at the well in John 4 and says that we're to worship in spirit and in truth. He says that the kingdom of God is like, you know, teachers of the kingdom of God are it's like a store owner that brings out old things as well as new. And so I began to go, wait a second, even this idea of the kingdom of God, it's here, but it's not yet. And so how do we live in this tension? It's a little bit messier, the theology and the teaching that I grew up with. And I said, we got we to gotta wrestle with this. I began to look around and didn't see a whole lot out there and just began to write my own experience down and ended up becoming a book. What I found fascinating, JR, when I was reading it, you opened with a concept that I found so compelling. It's this Italian word, the mandola. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. That's my best Italian. Uh, and JR, what on earth is a mandola? And why has it been so informative for you as a theologian? As a visual learner, and my friends and my family will always poke fun of me because I'm always giving analogies or drawing diagrams. One of my favorite diagrams I draw on a napkin or in a journal is a Venn diagram. And, you know, we see these two overlapping shapes. And if you've ever seen a Venn diagram, you know, there's that overlapping circle in that space on a two set Venn diagram. It looks like a football shape in the middle. And I'd always refer to it as the football shape. You're talking about the two circles that overlap. Yeah. And they're in the middle, this region where the two circles share territory. It looks yeah. like a football. Yeah. looks like a football. And I actually, instead of calling it just the football shape, I actually <laughs> found out it had a name and it's called the mandorla. And the mandorla is this Italian word, which means almond because of its shape. In fact, there was an Italian gentleman who actually recently read my book. And he said, actually, at my favorite coffee shop, the drink that I get every time is the cafe di mandorla, the coffee with foamed almond milk. So he said, yes, like we use that term all the time. But, you know, one of the things that I noticed in that overlap is, yeah, I mean, that's the Christian life. Even though we want to be in this black and white thinking, there's actually a lot of overlap. And I thought, this is the Christian life, that the more I realized that the life of the Christian is to live in the mandorla, I realized Jesus, that's where he lives, right in the middle of that, that overlap. And I'm not the first to notice this, by the way. I mean, this, is, this concept has been around a long time. I mean, the Trinity symbol, when we think about the three leaves, those are three overlapping circles. What a beautiful way to visualize three in one and one in three. We see this in Christian art throughout the centuries. Christian artists, Jesus shows up in the middle of a Venn diagram. And, uh, and throughout the book, I have several different drawings or doodles that I created myself to articulate this overlapped life. So in some senses, it's, 
it, it's kind of like if, if you think about the overlapped life, it's kind of like closing one eye. You can still see, but your depth perception and your peripheral vision is skewed significantly. And we need both eyes in order to see with sharpness and clarity and depth. I'm a huge baseball fan. So you think about a baseball outfielder trying to catch a pop fly while trying to cover one eye. It's possible, but it's really, really difficult. And the better way to live is with two eyes open. And I think in many ways, the idea of the mandorla is learning to live as followers of Jesus with both eyes open, because then we begin to see the world and we begin to see what's true with greater sharpness and clarity and robustness. So walk us through an example of how this shape, this almond shape of the mandorla can help us think theologically about Jesus. You do this in the book a little bit, and I think just the deity, you know, help us understand a little bit of how this has helped assist or aid or further your understanding of, you know, Christological matters, the deity of Christ, things like this. Yeah, I think the first thing that comes to mind is the incarnation, right? What does it mean to be fully God and fully man? And that whole idea is a mandorla concept. And so, I think there are times, if we're not careful as evangelicals, is to overemphasize Jesus's deity, that we actually underemphasize his humanity. And then there are other sections of the church that have overemphasized his humanity and underemphasized his deity. And I think just being able to live in that incarnational mystery and to realize, wow, you know, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, I think is really, really important. The second thing is I, I really believe as Jesus talks about this idea of justice and mercy, you know, there are sectors within the church that overemphasizes mercy and, and don't want to talk about justice. Uh, and there are those that overemphasize justice and don't talk much about mercy. And so what does that mean? Even spirit and truth. You know, sometimes we can overemphasize scripture and box out the spirit. Sometimes we can lean too much into the spirit and kind of push scripture to the side. And so I think all of these, again, living intention, one more concept I'll give you, the idea of the kingdom of God. You know, sometimes that we think, oh, that's when I die and we'll deal with it then. But Jesus actually invites us to life abundantly right now. And so sometimes we can overemphasize the afterlife that we forget we have a current life and vice versa, where we put so much emphasis here in this world that we miss out on the fact that we need to live in light of eternity. So a lot of these tensions, uh, again, the more I peeled back the layers of the onion, the more I realized how big this onion was, that there are lots and lots of examples throughout scripture of this both and reality. It's it's really helpful to hear you talk through this, and you write so well in your your book about these these features. You know, one of the things you write in chapter one is you say, "quote The Eastern Orthodox tradition is rooted in deep wonder at the mystery and ambiguity of God." I, I love that, and that's so true. Eastern Orthodox Christians are not turned off or scared away by the mystery of faith. It's this very mystery that draws them further into faith. They see the overlaps in every area of life. St. Gregory the theologian wrote that faith is founded in this, quote, productive tension that is paradoxical, preserving the mystery without resolving it. I'm wondering if you can, you've already touched on this a little bit, but why have you found it so important? Why have you been so compelled to bring this to our attention? You know, where's the problem right now? Perhaps we'll just use Western Christianity as an example. Where's the problem that you feel it's so necessary that you have to draw our attention to this? 
Yeah. One is cultural and one is more societal. And I, I think culturally, you know, Eastern culture is much more comfortable with mystery and not having everything solved. And that is the world that Jesus grew up in, right? This idea of questions and mystery, we're okay. But here in the West, it's sort of a modern mindset. The enlightenment is, you know, two plus two equals four. Like we need to know. And if we can't prove it, it didn't happen. It's not true. And we lose out a great deal that God is both imminent and transcendent, right? He is mysterious and he's, he's known incarnationally. And if we only understand him on facts, but we don't let him be God in the mystery, we really miss out. Before we had kids, um, our, our, our adopted our sons, my wife and I went to uh, Grand Teton National Park. And we were in the Tetons camping one night. And I just found myself looking up from our campfire at the Grand Teton there. And I found myself for about 30 minutes, I couldn't take my eyes off of it. And my wife noticed this. She said, you haven't looked down at your book for a long time. Why not? And I said, I think it's because I'm so drawn by the mystery. I can't look away. I, my brain can't fully take in just how beautiful the Teton, the peak that I'm actually looking at here. And I thought, man, I wish I would appreciate the mystery of God the same way. Sometimes I can say, oh, he's too mysterious and hard to understand. And but if I really, truly understand the mystery of God, it will draw me in further rather than push me away. The more I look into the mystery of God, the more I realize I don't know anything. And then he becomes more God and more important in my life than before. I have often thought about those first century sects of Judaism that were all prepared and ready for their Messiah to come, who had in their theological boxes mm -hmm. the set ordered way and features that that coming Messiah would have. And they knew their scriptures so well. And you know this, JR, you've studied in Israel, you've gotten your MDiv, you've studied all over um, the scriptures. And yet when Jesus shows up, they don't have capacity. They don't, he doesn't fit in any of their theological boxes. And they didn't have any room anymore for mystery. And I wonder sometimes, I, I fear, and this is a prayer of my own, will I have eyes to see Jesus when he returns? Or, you know, assuming it would ever be in my life, would I have eyes that could see it, see him? Or... Would I miss it? Because I've created too many rigid boxes, either or boxes, and Jesus may actually not fit because there's this mystery. And I love how you said mystery draws us deeper into faith. Mm. And I want to talk about that for a minute. You know, you write a lot about prayer in this book, and prayer is critical in discipleship. You write this about the Lord's Prayer. Jesus' prayer is modeled closely after a Jewish prayer called the Kaddish. It's similar sounding line in that prayer sounds like this, quote, and may he establish his kingdom during your lifetime and during your days and during the life of all the house of Israel speedily and in the near future. And then, end quote, and then you go on to say kingdom theology is Venn diagram theology. <laughs> I like that. And whether we realize it or not, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're praying a mandorla prayer. And I love it. It's good stuff. I'm wondering if you can elaborate on it a bit more for us. How do you understand the Lord's Prayer to hold intention these two differing realities? How can the mystery of God draw us deeper into relationship with him? Yeah, in the Gospel of Luke, the disciples, they, they came to Jesus and they asked him to teach them how to pray. 
which I find so interesting because it's the only time recorded in the Gospels where the disciples specifically, explicitly ask Jesus to teach them how to do something, not how to it's cast a, out it's demons. A good, it's a good thing to ask Jesus to teach it, you about. It's a great thing. It's a great thing. But they didn't ask him how to preach great sermons or how to cast out demons or how to do effective pastoral visits at hospitals, but how to pray. And when his disciples ask him to pray, Jesus doesn't launch into this 45-minute seminary lecture, nor does he give the first week of an eight-week Sunday school curriculum answer. He simply prays for less than 30 seconds. And Jesus invites us to participate in communicating with the Father where his words are few, but they're really powerful. And we see this mystery and the accessibility of the prayer that Jesus teaches his followers to pray. It's for the past, the present, and the future. So it's actually a three-set Venn diagram. (laughs) It's also a prayer for the temporary, feed us, but also for our eternal needs, you know, forgive us. And so it's for this earthly life and also for the life to come, another Venn diagram. But we also offer our petitions, uh, they're, they're eternal, that God's name would be hallowed, that we would live in the kingdom forever, that he would do his will. And so we pray this overlapping of heaven and earth, the present and the future. It's also this communal prayer. It's for us, but it's also for others. Give us this day, forgive our trespasses, which means that my prayers overlap and include others and others who are praying this prayer. It also includes me. And so this mystery that Jesus teaches us to do is only 30 seconds long. And I, right when I think I fully understand it, I realize I am still just in first grade when it comes to learning uh, how to pray the Lord's Prayer. That's good. What you're saying is that there's multiple layers of tension in this prayer. And Absolutely. Jesus, in this 30 second prayer that he's teaching his disciples how to do, there are multiple tensions held and hence it being a Mandorla kind of concept. We live in the middle of this tension. Jesus is inviting us to be in the middle of both the right now and the future. We pray for the kingdom as it is in heaven to be here on earth now. We pray that Jesus will forgive us our sin. The Father will forgive us our sin just as we forgive those who've sinned against us. There are these constant tensions going on. So the Lord's Prayer is such a beautiful prayer, and I know many different people have used it differently and prayed through it differently. What are some of the ways that you have found helpful in praying the Lord's Prayer aside from just memorizing it and reciting it? On a very practical level, two ways I try to integrate it. Again, as a as a professor, one of the things that I do in all of my courses is that I require my students, we stand up and we say the Shema from Deuteronomy And we also then end every time with the Lord, every class by standing and saying the Lord's Prayer together. And we feel like that bookend, love Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then on the other side, the Lord's Prayer, that everything we do should be bookend, you know, those two bookends, everything we do should be wrapped and enveloped by those kingdom realities. So that's the first thing to do that communally. Sometimes at dinnertime, we will do that as a family. And I will say, I want us to slow down and say it very awkwardly slowly so that it really sinks in so we don't go into autopilot. But also, you know, we've learned in this pandemic, you know, wash your hands a lot, you know, and so one of the things that I've done is they say, wash your hands for about 30 seconds. And one of the things the CDC required was they say, sing happy birthday in your head when you wash your hands. And that's how long you should, you should do it. And I said, you know, as a follower of Jesus, there are probably some more redemptive things that I can be doing than sing happy birthday every time I wash my hands. So I thought, you know, that's about the length of the Lord's prayer. 
And so instead of happy birthday, I now pray the Lord's prayer every time I wash my hands. And it not only keeps me lathered up and washing the appropriate length of time, but every time I use the restroom, every time I get ready for a meal to say the Lord's prayer, then becomes a normal part of my day. I'm already investing 30 seconds to wash my hands. I don't need to think much about it. I might as well encompass the mandorla prayer of Jesus into my everyday life. You've been to Israel before, so you're probably familiar with some of the mikvah rituals, mm -hmm. washing and things like this. And I, I love the idea of washing your hands. You know, and for those of you who aren't familiar with a mikvah ritual, it's it's essentially a ritual of Jewish cleansing. And some Christians will do it as well, where you are committing yourself and cleansing yourself in the process through living water. And the idea of washing your hands and doing that prayer through it, I love it. it kind of, that's what it made me think of just now. Yeah, uh, I mean, think of like, you know, forgive us our sins, right? This washing away, like I'm literally engaged exactly. yeah, experientially exactly. in that process and it becomes a little bit more real. That's so good. It's so good. You know, that's that's one way to have prayer be a part of your your personal privatized faith. And I love how you do this with your family too occasionally. There's also the next level up of the, of the bigger, even the bigger church community beyond our nuclear family that we're with, but our brothers and sisters that we gather. And we, uh, as you say, it, we get inhaled by and then exhaled by, which, oh, that was so good. I don't know. We're not even going to talk about that. You just have to go read the book. It was so good. But how is prayer helpful and critical and vital for the church community. And, you know, there's a story you tell in the book, and maybe you'll, you'll share it now if, it, if, if you feel like it, but the Wings Night story and the prayer, I was moved by that. I thought that was very enriching. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how prayer can shape a small group and propel a small group forward. Well, again, we do have to remember that this is a communal prayer. It doesn't say, you know, forgive me my sins, you know, give me my daily bread. These are these are communal words that we need to, to keep in mind that are part of the prayer. And of course, a communal concept in the first century, much more than our individualized culture today. So, yeah, you mentioned the story. There's, there's a story we call Wings Night and uh, Wing Night. Uh, with a bunch of guys. Several years ago, our church developed an intentional and intense men's discipleship initiative. And so uh, we invite a group of spiritually hungry guys to press into Jesus and into each other for several weeks. And it's been one of the more fruitful initiatives that we've created. And so when a new cohort of men and this discipleship small group, when they complete the process, and again, it's pretty intense, we welcome them to a night of celebration. And so before it begins, uh, we give them an address to a restaurant, and we give them one really cryptic, mysterious piece of instruction. We say, we want you to wear a white dress shirt, a white collared shirt that you don't mind throwing away. And they look at me and say, what are you talking about? I say, if you need to go to the thrift store, you know, go, that's fine. But you need to wear a white button down, nice collared dress shirt. And they're just so confused uh, when we do this. As, as I was when I was reading this part in the book, I'm thinking <laughs> in my head, like, what's going to happen here? <laughs> it was so good, though. It's so good. Keep going. And yeah. So what they learn later when they show up all dressed up, they show up uh, is that we've reserved the upstairs room at a restaurant that's known for its hot wings. And so we contact the restaurant ahead of time and we give them specific instructions. You know, you know, we've got a group of, you know, whatever, 25, 30 people coming, sometimes larger. We say, here's the deal. Please set the tables. But in no in no uncertain terms, do not put out napkins. 
If you're asked for napkins, do not supply napkins. So when the men arrive, they're greeted by other men. They don't know that the other alumni that have gone through the men's discipleship cohort is there. And so they're congratulated with hugs and high fives, just kind of welcoming them in and you did it and great job. And we're all seated, ready to enjoy the all-we-can-eat wings. We inform them that there are no napkins. Do not ask the waitress for napkins, that the only napkins available to them are the white shirts of the men to their left and to their right. And uh, people look at us like, are we serious? And they say, look, yes, that, that's it. And so we, we eat, we laugh, we tell stories, we make just one big mess. It's one of our favorite nights of the year. And so guys are turning to guys next to them and smearing it all over their back and saying, you know, making jokes, hey, buddy, hope you're doing well. And just kind of slapping, it's just splattering everywhere. Sometimes they're drawing smiley faces. Sounds like, or... a, sounds like a normal time for me at a meal. <laughs> I mean, that's like what normal meals look like for me. But anyway, it's just... <laughs> so we go from these nice white, white dress shirts to just being caked and just drizzled with with sauces. And, you know, one of the things we say to them afterwards, and it's a fun night. I mean, it's a memory you don't forget. As Donald Miller says, the best memories in life are when you're cold, wet, or dirty. And so that's a memory that we don't forget. At the end, we always stand up and we say, here's the deal. Here's why we did this. It was fun. We celebrate you. God's doing a good work. You finished the cohort. It's not done. You're done with discipleship when you die, (laughs) that this is a lifelong thing, but you've done it through this cohort. But here's the deal. You and I wear the messes of the guys next to us literally tonight, but that is the Christian life, that they wear our messes, we wear their messes, and uh, even though no matter how many times we take uh, a shower, we still smell like the wing sauce several days later, and the wait staff loves it. But we cast the vision to continue in the way of Jesus, That, uh, and we pray for each guy at the table, and we pray for their messes. Some of them are hidden messes. We pray those messes would become public messes appropriately so that other guys can carry those messes. And so it becomes this idea of share and carry one another's burdens. Uh, we've done that with sauce. So let's do this with each other's lives. And so it looks like we just stepped out of a war zone. I mean, we, we get a picture afterwards and the waitresses just giggle and laugh. They I think it's that. hilarious. But it is a sense we are engaged in a battle and we want men to know and everybody to know that we're called to wear the messages of others. And so while we're reeking of uh, hot sauce, we recognize this is the li- a living metaphor of the Christian life. And this is really important that we don't live privatized lives to ourselves, that we're sharing the messes, our messes with others and others carry our messes with them as well. What a beautiful, beautiful story about that men's discipleship group and how they literally look like they have been through a war zone and they are in a spiritual battle and they are carrying each other's burdens in life. None of this ever is done alone. And it goes back to what we said a while back, or you said it, mystery is an opportunity to deepen our faith. And we can enter into that mystery. And you say this in the book, we can enter into this mystery through prayer and conversation. And you make a big deal about two prepositions in relation to God. And you know what I'm going to say, but you you talk about, is it better to do things for God? Or is there a better preposition? And, and I think you come up with a great preposition that I think is throughout the scriptures and we need to think about it. But maybe you want to talk about that word for a minute and how it's so critical and how it connects with prayer. Yeah. Yeah. We use that preposition. I'm going to lead for God. We're going to do this for God. And what's alarming is that's not the posture we find in scripture. The better preposition we find is the word with, with God. And when we live for God and not with God, it can lead to burnout and cynicism 
It can lead to arrogance and most sadly, most significantly, a perverted relationship with God because he says, I don't want you to do things for me. I want you to do things with me. And I love how Dr. Cherith Fee Nordling said it. She said, when her feet hit the floor in the morning, the first thought in her mind is, Lord, what are we going to do today together? And I love that. That's a with God mindset. She's great. We had her on the podcast earlier. She's a wonderful, wonderful thinker. But yeah, it's about being with God. It's about being in his presence and doing this life with him. I think, you know, what would you say if you got a chance right now to talk to a ministry leader, you know, you were to ask them some questions or encourage them of what it would look like to begin the journey with God. If maybe they've been in this whole scenario of I've been doing things for God and maybe they have a realization moment of, wait a minute, what does it mean to do something differently than for God, but rather with God? What would you say to them? Yeah. When I think of the people that I do things for, it's often transactional. You know, I, I do things for other people, but if I'm with people, you know, with is such a relational word, right? I mean, that's Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, yes, he's for us, but God is with us and he wants us to be with him. Anytime we see the word with in the gospels, we should circle it because Jesus is always doing ministry with people. He's always doing things with his father. And I, I think that word with is so important. Relationally, we move with others with them. And so uh, I think even the first thing is just to be aware of it. The second thing is circle the word with every time we see it in the gospels and see how important it is to Jesus, number two. Third, while the analogy will eventually break down, I mean, I think about, you know, a spouse, a relationship with a spouse that's, that someone listening might have. We can do things for our spouse and that's good. But when our spouse truly feels loved, it's when we just are with them, fully present, giving them a full-bodied yes when we're in their presence. And we can do things for them, but it comes out of, it's an overflow of a with relationship. And so when I find myself tipping into the temptation to live into a for God life, I realize just like my wife doesn't want me to just do things for her, she really feels loved when I'm with her. Ah, I got I to gotta really lean into this to be with Jesus. That's what he wants. It's so much better to walk with my wife than to take a walk for my wife. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very well put. Absolutely. And to be honest, there are things that God calls us to do, and they are um, most often for his creation and yeah. the redemption of it. And, and that's where we do things for. We're doing things. God calls us to do things for the blessing of others. Yeah. But the whole time he says, I actually, I want to do it with you. We see it in the beginning in the Garden of Eden where God shows up walking in the garden, looking for Adam and Eve. And we see it in Jesus's ministry in full force as he's walking with his disciples. Come and see. And I love that. It's so great. JR, this has been awesome. And it's given me a lot to think about your book. I mean, we've just scratched the surface. So I really hope our ministry leaders out there will consider getting this book to think about further their ministry. But I want to end, I always like to do this with a few of the guests, a rapid fire segment. Mm -hmm. Are you up for some rapid fire? Yeah, that's great. I love it. Okay, so I'm going to just ask the question and then I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say anything to which everybody says, great, this is wonderful. So I'm just going to fire away and whatever comes to your mind, go ahead and go after it, right? Okay, sounds, sounds great. Good? So here's the first question. How do you hear God speak? Yeah, well, he sounds a lot like Morgan Freeman and James Earl Jones to me. So no, I'm just kidding. But one of the things when I hear God speak, I hear him best when 
I have a pen in my hand or when I'm using my feet. I journal every day. You don't have to journal. God, you know, there's no command that says thou shalt have to journal. Jesus didn't journal. But for me, I meet God when I journal. Just let it all out on the page. And I also love to prayer walk. So I hear God best when I'm journaling and when I'm walking. And Jesus shows up to me clearly in scripture. I love everything from deep studies to the ancient prayer practice called Lectio Divina. I found that to be an incredibly helpful way in my own journey. But I'm just not that spiritual Oliver to just bow my head at my desk, close my eyes and pray for an hour. And I used to beat myself up all the time about that. But I realized that what God does do, if I'm willing to pay attention, there are promptings and there are nudges, or some people call them impressions in my life. And these little nudges that just sense like, you know, hey, reach out to that person, encourage them. I want you to pray for that. I haven't thought about that person in 15 years. Why did they come to mind? I don't know, but I'm going to take that thought as a trigger to prayer. And so for me, I often take these nudges or reminders or promptings or impressions as instead of like, no, 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 get focused again. I go, well, maybe that a bit of my wandering mind is actually where Jesus wants me to to actually devote my time and prayer in this moment. So a lot of times when my mind wanders, it's some of my best times of prayer and being in connection with God. What would you say to somebody who feels like they're hitting the wall in prayer? Don't beat yourself up. Don't feel ashamed. That's exactly what the evil one would love for you to feel in that moment and discourage you further. And I remember this line from my friend who's a spiritual director. She said, be as gracious and as patient with yourself as God is with you. And I think that's really important. Practically speaking, I'd want to encourage a leader instead of beating yourself up, find what you're passionate about and pray there. Find what you're feeling, the strongest emotions, anger, sadness, overwhelm, fear, loneliness, excitement, joy. Pray into that. That's a great springboard into our prayers. I think David did that quite a bit in the Psalms. And then again, notice when your mind wanders, don't beat yourself up. Just say, Lord, my mind has wandered and I'm thinking about this. Pray about that. Pray about that. And then the last one, I would encourage us all to pray the Psalms. They have literally been the prayer book of the church for thousands of years up until about a hundred years ago. And then we've stopped praying the prayers as our primary prayer book. There are great training wheels to help us learn how to ride the bike of prayer. Where's your favorite place to write? My home office, because it's usually the place where I am interrupted the least. What is Kairos Partnerships and who is it for? Yeah, most leaders are, are burned out by complexity and exhaustion. And so our organization equips kingdom leaders with the perspectives and the tools that they need to lead with clarity and with confidence. So we do that by being companions on the journey of leadership and ministry through coaching and consulting, mentoring, training, and equipping. We're trying to live up to our names. You know, that idea of Kairos or Kairos, you know, God ordained time. Most leaders feel lonely in those and they don't know what to do. So we're just trying to partner with leaders when they have those Kairos, Kairos moments of life, especially in the pandemic. There's a whole bunch of those Kairos moments happening. When did your love for art begin? I noticed in your work, you referenced quite a few artworks and you seem to have an eye for beautiful things. Mm. I'm a visual learner, as I said, and so I always feel drawn to the visual. I'm not an artist much myself, but I have always appreciated the sense of beauty that I see in art. Art helps me pay attention to this wonderful world that God has, and it also forces me to ask questions about my own life, about God, and about the world. 
I love the written word, but I realized, I realized my love for art when I found that it could help me engage and connect with God in meaningful ways that words just could not. I think it helps me appreciate the mystery even more. I know you were a basketball player, an avid one. Slam dunks or three-pointers? I was a, a guy well below the rim, so definitely three-pointers. <laughs> yeah, I understand. I resonate with that, too. Favorite, last one, your favorite wings flavor on wings night. Yeah, anything that has a kick to it, but not a punch in the face. I like to taste my food. I don't like to suffer through it. Nice, nice. You know, I gotta, I do, I'll ask one more. You're a Pennsylvania guy, so, and I love hockey. Are you a Penguins or a Flyers fan? Yeah, is, uh, is hockey that sport you play on ice? Is that what that thing is? So I, <laughs> I'm not a huge hockey fan, but we're huge, even though basketball is okay. something I love. We're also baseball and football, so we're a Phillies and Eagles family for sure. Nice, nice. Well, this has been a pleasure today, JR, just to chat with you and uh, for our listeners to have an opportunity to learn from you a little bit. Um, I bet your students... Uh, reap these benefits all the time in your classes. And uh, I'm sure anybody out there listening, if you ever wanted to go take a class, you can find JR over at Missio Seminary and, you know, enroll in a class somehow. Do you do online classes, JR? Yeah. In fact, we have a discipleship course coming up this summer that's my favorite course that I teach as summer course, and it's online and available to anybody around the world. I want to give you an opportunity. Do you want to say any last words to our listeners today? Maybe a piece of wisdom or encouragement. Our audience are typically ministry leaders. Would you want to give them any word of encouragement or signing off today? I want to say thank you because ministry was hard before the pandemic. And the fact whether you're a paid full-time vocational pastor or you lead in some capacity as a member of the important laity Thanks for what you're doing. I know it's been complex and it's been overwhelming and stressful. And I just want to say thank you for not giving up. I know it's been hard. I know you've been misunderstood of the hundreds and hundreds of leaders that I've worked with in the past year plus during this pandemic. Not a single one says, I'm just killing it. I'm thriving. I'm in the best place I've ever been. So I just want to say thank you to leaders and to encourage them to not give up. It's worth it. It's hard for sure, but faithfulness is worth it. And so thanks for faithfully plodding along through a difficult season, especially when you might have been tempted to give up, but to say, don't give up, keep going. And uh, let's make sure we live with, with God lives and not for God lives as our primary motivation. That's a great word. Thanks, GR. We appreciate that so much. We appreciate you and your ministry. And for those of you tuning in, we thank you for tuning into the Transforming Discipleship Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by smallgroups.com. We're Ministry of Christianity today. And we uh, just appreciate you. And if you are finding this podcast helpful for you or your ministry, would you please do us a favor and share it with your colleagues and other ministry partners uh, and give us a rating on iTunes or whatever, wherever you get your podcast from. That would be most appreciated. Thank you so much. If you'd like full access to smallgroups.com, you can subscribe today. We have various plans to meet your budget. This will give you access to hundreds of Bible studies. Indeed, there'll be some even on the topic of prayer if you are looking to dive deeper into that. There's training tools there for your leaders. And we have a recent segment now that's available for our subscribers called Ask the Expert. GR, we're going to have to have you write one for that, I'm sure. Um, if you'd like to learn more from JR, you can take a class with him. You can visit his website, kairospartnerships.org. That's K-A-I-R-O-S partnerships.org. Or you can check out his latest book, The Sacred Overlap, Learning to Live Faithfully in the Space 
between. Until next time, friends, God bless. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.